Message four, the motivation for godliness. First Timothy chapter six, beginning with verse three. Very familiar passage of scripture. We've read it almost every Sunday. We're going to do it again one last time. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. We don't fight about the Word of God here, do we? It isn't that we don't question each other, though. We're like the Bereans, amen? If we hear something, let's go to the Word and see whether it is true or not, amen? And the Bereans were complimented for that. Verse 4, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means to gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Read that with me out loud. But godliness with contentment is great gain. One more time. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all things, are all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, fastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Why is this passage of Scripture going to be pushed onto us today by the Holy Spirit? Why is it going to be made life to us? And I'll tell you why. Those of you who have been through the, the radical series, those six messages, and anybody can come by my office anytime and see those. You need to see those messages, six messages on radical. It's called Radical Christianity, but I'm finding out that the, the title is wrong. It's not supposed to be radical. It's only radical because we missed it. We didn't pay attention. We weren't looking. We weren't embracing on our own. So we had to be jarred into seeing the truth. But what do we know about the truth? 
We know that there are about a billion and a half people in this world today that are trying to live off of less than a dollar a day. There's another billion to a billion and a half that live on less than $2 a day. And what was pointed out to us, many of our pets live on more than $2 a day. So what does that tell us factually? There's nobody, nobody in this room, if you have food to eat, if you have a roof over your head, you've got clothes on your back, you're richer than about 3 billion people in, in this world, in this plan, on this planet. You're richer than 3 billion people. Little food, roof over your head, clothes on your back. Needs are being met, right? Three billion people are struggling to get those things, right? So, so in reality, who are the rich people being talked about in the Bible? It's us. America, listen to me. We, we, we're rich. We're rich, right? We can't, you know, you say, well, Brother Dennis, you don't know how tight it is at my house. I know that it's not as tight as it is for three billion other people on the planet that we live on, that we share with, right? So the scripture I just read tells us what we're supposed to be doing, right? And we're going to rehearse those things. Now, I wrote a synopsis for this message. The goal of this message on the motivation for godliness is to illustrate the material and spiritual blessings that God has in store for those who are faithful to pursue a lifestyle of godliness. It's not to make you rich, you know, that was a tendency in the body of Christ for a number of years. I was caught up in it. I mean, who would, see, who would be stupid enough to say if someone that you had respect for, that had authority over you, a pastor or a pastor or an evangelist or somebody who said, how many of you in this room want to be rich? And they told you, God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be wealthy. Come up here, I'm going to pray for you. God make you rich. I never saw anybody that got that prayer prayed over them that went on and got rich. Not a one. I got to tell you, me included. <laughs> Do you understand? I, when, am I the only one that would confess that, that I went through that? I went through that. Till you find out what the Word of God has to say. Does God make some people rich? Yes, he does. And we're going to find out why. All right. Godliness is a lifestyle that is consistent with the character of God. We've all, we already talked about that many times. We've got that as a definition. Godliness does not mean perfection, but it does mean growth and consistency where we are both desirous of and functioning in a way that reflects who God is. That's a lot of words, isn't it? Got to say it again. Godliness does not mean perfection. We can remember that easy, right? But it does mean growth and consistency where we are both desirous of and functioning in a way that reflects who God is. How many of us can really say we're doing that? We, we really need to work on that, don't we? I think as a, as a body. Your soul, listen to this. If you love God at all, here's the way I'm going to put it across to you so that we can all understand. If you love God at all, there are times when you sit with your head in your hands and you want to be more godly and you're in a fight over it. You're struggling over it. Let me tell you the beauty of that. The beauty of it is that your soul wants to pursue godliness. Say, well, clarify, clarify, I love to clarify. The soul is the seat of your intellect. 
you're trying, you're struggling, you're fighting to make decisions to follow after God because that's what your soul really wants to do, but your flesh doesn't want to do it. Am I right or wrong? Are you following with what I'm saying? The flesh doesn't want to cooperate, but the soul wants it, right? That's a good sign. I say that if a person has a struggle going on in their life and and the devil's screaming at you, you're never going to win, keep on fighting. Keep on listening to that intellect that's trying to make quality decisions to follow the dictates of your spirit where all things have been set right. It's all been set right. That's where it happens, where the Scripture says when you get saved, old things pass away. All things become new. That's your spirit, man. And then there's, there's the flesh at the other end of the football field that's tugging, pulling, and fighting. And in the middle is the battlefield of the mind where quality decisions, bad decisions, and sometimes no decisions. And let me tell you something. Uh, not making a decision is making a decision, whether you understand it or not. It's not neutral. The soul is not neutral. It's not neutral. Are you picking that up with me now? You following with me? Because we've got some good things to learn here in wrapping all this up. Your soul is begging for godliness. It, or you wouldn't have asked Jesus in there in the first place. You see what I'm saying? You need to hear that because some of you don't know it. How many of you believe that the more word of God you can put down on the inside, the better off you are? Put the word of God down on the inside of you, right? All right, listen. I believe that you struggle because your soul wants godliness. It doesn't want the things that the flesh wants. The flesh just wants what the flesh wants, right? And sometimes we just let the flesh do the dictating. We can't do it anymore because we know too much. If you know too much, the more word you put on the inside. Look, if you're going to come to the church, you think I'm going to hold back? You think I'm not going to give you the word? You think I'm not going to tell you the truth? I've got to hear the truth. I'm going to give it to me. I might as well give it to you. Amen? All right. It's begging to be filled with more of God. That's, what, that's where the conflict is. The flesh don't want more of God because it knows it has to die. You can't feed that flesh. But if you feed the mind, the soul, the things of the spirit, it grows. It takes command. Amen? And then the series of decisions you make become more quality decisions that help point you towards God. Amen? Listen to me carefully. I used to think that Jesus died on, the, died on the cross for my sins so I wouldn't have to. But he died on the cross to set an example for me. Listen to me. He made provision for you to be an eternal creature living with him forever. Amen. And then the soul, that's eternal. If it feeds on the things of the spirit and the things of the word, good. God made provision for you to live forever with him. But listen to this. He never made provision for your flesh that went beyond providing healing for it. If you need to touch from God, God can touch you. God can heal you. Amen. He allowed Jesus Christ to receive stripes on his back so that we can be healed. Amen. Other than that, he didn't make provisions for the flesh. That's what's got to get nailed to the cross. That's what's got to die. Now, 
whether you understand this or not, I'm from the South, and that is shouting news right there. That's what you, we used to shout over that. But moving on. <laughs> All right. It's begging to be filled with more of God. If the soul is not being filled with godliness, you wind up with a starving soul. You've got to treat it right. Amen? It's a big problem because this is the one thing above all other things that interrupts our move towards godliness. It's it. It's the great wall of China in our lives. Right? That's the one thing that will hinder, limit, distort, and deny our desire to pursue godliness. And Paul tells Timothy to make this point clear. This is one mentor telling a young pastor, teach these things to your people so they might know deliverance. Amen? There is great gain in godliness, but only under God's conditions. Whenever you see people using religion solely for financial gain, you will also see prosperity theology. I was really thrilled to hear someone say today that, I, I, I'll throw this name out there, I knew, I knew this guy. We started in the ministry together. Benny Hinn. We started in the ministry together. Only I went one way, he went another. Matter of fact, I started out in the ministry with a block of people that were in Benny's category. They all went on to minister to millions of people, and I'm here today. But God had a different path for me. God showed me very early on in life that the prosperity message was out of balance as the way it was being taught, right? And God wanted me to teach differently, so I teach differently. Amen? I was glad to hear the other day that Benny Hinn qualified what he had been teaching about money in the past, and his message was dead on. Do you know how that thrills me today? Because I prayed for him and prayed for him and prayed for him. Do you know what that means? How God can use him in a greater way now than he's ever used him before? And the latter can be greater than the former. Amen? Just keep praying for all of us in the pulpits of this land. Amen? There are people that go to church just to get the blessings. They use a camouflage of godliness for a financial benefit that will accrue to them. It's called materialism. Money itself is not the problem. Loving it and longing for it above anything else is the problem. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to be thorough every time I go into a series of messages, and this has to be covered. But now I will tell you that I'm, I may be mistaken, but I don't think I've met any gazillionaires on the roster here. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You know what a gazillionaire is, don't you? A gazillionaire has got more money than they can count. Kind of like being educated on your intelligence, having more money than you know what to do with. I mean, in my mind, that was funnier when I, when I thought it. How many of you know that money itself is not the problem? Loving it, longing for it, above anything else, that's a problem. How do you know if you're a materialist or a lover of money? I, I, even though we're n no millionaires lining up in here, you can still have a problem with money, right? I can tell you that, look, look, I'm going to say some things today that I'm not pointing at anybody but me, all right? I mean, look, look, I will tell you that if the shoe fits and you want to put it on for size, try it out, right? But I'm not picking on anybody here. I'm not. There's no one here I know that fits this description. 
But I'm an Alaskan, right? I've been here. I can say that now because I've been here for 40 years. Can I say I'm Alaskan if I've been here 40 years? I, I hope so, right? Well, there were times when I saw all my buddies run out and they get four-wheelers, put them in the garage. Is there anything wrong with owning a four-wheeler? No, right? Well, then my buddy, you know, my buddies who go out, they get boats. You know, when are you going to get a four-wheeler, Carl? I said, I don't know. They said, when you get a boat? I go, I don't have a four-wheeler yet, you know? And, and, and so in Alaska, they have what they call Alaska toys. And I think they're fine, right? But God told me, no. And it's okay. I'm not jealous. I'm not upset. It doesn't bother me at all. I know clearly that God said, don't get all those things and pile them up in your garage and out on your lawn and in your driveway and all that kind of stuff. Because I was thinking hard. I thought, well, if I get a four-wheeler, I've got to get a trailer, right? If I get a boat, I've got to have a boat trailer, you know? If I get a camper, I've got to park it in the driveway. You understand what I'm saying? Look, and there's nothing wrong with owning a camper. It's all about why you own the camper. Do you understand what I'm saying? I could have filled my driveway with things I couldn't even afford to pay for. And God said, don't do it. And when you know that you know that you know God said don't do it, you better not do it. Right? How do I know if I'm a materialist or a lover of money? You know it when your desire for physical things has a greater priority in your life than your desire for spiritual truth. If I had pursued all those things after being told by God not to, how many of you think I'd be in trouble today? You'd only think you've been in trouble until you're in trouble with Father. Amen? And I'm going to tell you, when he takes you out behind the woodshed, you're going to know it. You don't have to ask yourself, did I just get taken out behind the woodshed? My stepfather is a loving man, didn't ever have any children of his own. He raised five that were not his. When I was six or seven years old and he came into my life, I didn't know what to think of him. He was 18 years old when he married my mother. My oldest sister was eight years old. He was 10 years older than my oldest sister. But he loved God, right? And he loved us kids. But he didn't quite know how to raise us. Do you understand what I'm saying? I remember one day after he'd been in our life about a year, he lost his temper with my mother, but he didn't hit her. He never hurt my mother, never. But he got angry, and he hauled off and hit a telephone pole and busted up his hand. How many of you know that's a hard lesson? We went to the emergency room, and he got his hand, you know, a cast on his hand is broken in several places. Now, listen to me carefully. We got home. It was dark. We parked in the parking lot of our apartment complex. And we were walking down the sidewalk to the house. And I'm thinking to me, Mr. How stupid can you get? You understand? I'm just being honest with you. This is my stepfather. And I said, how stupid can you get? And God showed me something. I looked up at that telephone pole that he struck. And that man's fist print was in that telephone pole. So I made a mental note. <laughs> Don't ever make this man mad enough to hit you <laughs> in the face. All right? I'm just being honest with you. That man knows I love him today like I love breathing. And he loves me. And he loves God. And he never hit anything else like that in his lifetime. I mean, 
He wasn't even 20 years old. Are you hearing me? Raising kids, dealing with the pressures of family, right? Poked the telephone pole, busted his hand up. But if that telephone pole is still there today, I guarantee you, you can see where he hit it, right? So now, when that man said to me and my teenage brother and our teenage years later, he said, boys, I've been thinking. He said, from now on, when we have a disagreement, you're old enough. We'll go up behind this shed here and we'll settle it like men. We went, okay. <laughs> okay. Never had to go out there with my dad. I just did what he taught me to do. You understand what I'm saying? If God ever takes you out behind that shed, you ain't going to have to ask who got you there. And you ain't going to have to ask why. Do you hear me? Let's listen to Father. Let's do what he says. Amen? As you know, we all know this. The problem with loving and longing for money is that we're never satisfied no matter how much money we have. It's like we were learning that you can't earn points with God. You can't earn your salvation. You can't get a checklist box and say, okay, I've done these things. Because if you start to do those things, you have to ask yourself, when is enough enough? It's the same way with the pursuit of money. If you're just pursuing money for the pursuit of money, when is enough enough? You know, I look at a room full of grateful people that God's taking care of us as a whole. He gets us through. Those of us facing the worst of the worst problems that people can think of in this country, God's still getting us through, right? God's still meeting the needs. God's still taking care of things. God is still God in our lives. So let me read this again. As we know, the problem with loving and longing for money is that you're never satisfied no matter how much money you have. In contrast, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 through 6, 5 and 6 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that not money in the bank? Amen? So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Amen? In other words... The contented man or woman is the one who knows that God is acting on his or her behalf no matter what. No matter what. No matter what it looks like. No matter what shape it takes. No matter what form it takes. It doesn't matter. God's for me. No one, no one can prosper. No weapon formed against me can prosper. Amen? One of the main reasons... One of the main reasons the spiritual is subject to the material is so many Christians' lives, in so many Christians' lives, is that they suffer from a lack of contentment. Let me read that again. One of the main reasons the spiritual is subject to the material is so many Christians' lives, in so many Christians' lives, is that they suffer from a lack of contentment. If we're not getting it right, we're going to be miserable. And we're just about goofy enough to blame him for it. As a matter of fact, it ain't just about. You would not believe how many people blame Father. They blame Father. Rather than trusting Father to meet the needs. Amen? Contentment means inner sufficiency in spite of external circumstances. Contentment means inner sufficiency in spite of external circumstances. The opposite is an all-consuming desire to get rich that Paul says will plunge anyone who takes that route into all kinds of pain and suffering. Why? You know, I'm telling you, I spent some time. I mean, I wasted. I spinning wheels. How many of you ever spun your wheels? You're spinning wheels, not going anywhere. 
wasting time, upset with God because that preacher's prayer wasn't answered for me. I, not only was I not rich, I was struggling. And I'm the only one in the room, right? I'm it, right? All eyes are upon me. I'm not the only one, am I? All right. We usually try to have three observations. I'm going to have two observations, and then I'm going to have, I'm going to repeat some things so that we know that we're not caught in this trap, all right? First observation. The Bible says godliness with contentment brings great gain. Right there. We, we could stop and go home. If we just let that soak in, embrace it above all other things that the devil tried and the world tries to crowd us with. And, you know, and our doubt and our fear and unbelief tries to bury us in, right? The Bible says godliness with contentment brings great gain. There is a great, and here's what, I wrote it this way. There is a great profit margin to godly living. But the profit is by design mostly spiritual, not material. You got to dwell on that. There is a great profit margin to godly living, but the profit is by design mostly spiritual, not mostly material. Now, I've got some things. You know, you've been to my home. I got some things. I, I got a nice house. I, I don't make no bones about it. I, I, and I'll tell you, don't, there's one reason, one reason only. I'm in it. I didn't know that I could buy it until I bought it, and I didn't buy it until God said, go get that house. Now, why has that house been important? We've got family coming, and they're going to live with us. They are the last family members I have of my children, my grandchildren, that have needed a place to live. And I had room at my house. God did that. I didn't do it. I can't, I couldn't, I, I'm not capable. I couldn't do it. God did it. And when God is finished with me and Ruthie in that house, it'll go away. That, that's it. That's just the truth. Now, I highlighted this. If you want to enjoy the high profit margin of godliness, a marriage needs to occur between your pursuit of godliness and contentment in your life, which has nothing to do with going after monetary gain. If you do those two things, all that other stuff falls into place. If you want to enjoy the high profit margin of godliness, a marriage needs to occur between your pursuit of godliness and the contentment and contentment in your life. Lack of contentment will stifle godliness. But the presence of contentment with the pursuit of godliness will give you a great profit margin. How do I know that? Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. The problem with trying to find contentment in material wealth is that it never satisfies. It's never enough. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. A great prayer to pray for contentment is found in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. 
He says, put me right in the sweet spot between the two. I don't want to be put in a position where I have to steal to feed my children and myself, but neither do I want to be filthy rich. I want to be content in the sweet spot of the Word of God, of the leading of God, of the Spirit of God. There is a sweet spot in their gloria. There's a sweet spot, and you can dwell there confidently. Amen? The problem is that too many people try to use godliness for greedy material gain. This attitude says, let me be more religious so God will give me more money. People like this are simply using godliness as a camouflage for greed. If money itself is not the problem, loving it and longing for it is the problem. Lack of contentment will stifle godliness, but the presence of contentment with the pursuit of godliness will give you a great profit margin. Here are some of the ways you can tell if you are a lover of money. Well, I'm going to save that. I'm going to save that. Point number two, if you're rich in money, you should be even richer in service. That's what, that's what we read, in, you know, at the beginning in 1 Timothy. Amen? The more your material worth goes up, the more your service to the Lord should go up. The reason there's so much misery in the church and the kingdom of God can advance is because so many rich people, rich people, so many of them. Now, I say so many of them. Let me qualify that. I know people that God gave money to, and they know why God gave them the money, right? And they're using it to advance the kingdom of God. But many rich people don't. The reason there's so much misery in the church and the kingdom of God can't advance is because so many rich people aren't generous. That's not a problem here. You're rich. You're Americans, right? You give. I've never seen a church like it. Keep up the good work, and God's gonna, God is even now showing us things that we are supposed to do. Amen? And we're reaching out to do those things, even now. And God wants us to get ready for the next big step. Amen? God has promised to richly supply all of our needs, right? The problem for many of us as Christians is that we have confused wants with needs. God's promised to richly supply all of our needs according to Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Is the word of God true? Yes, Amen. But before we can claim this promise, we need to learn the lesson that precedes this promise. Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 18. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into par partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. They were it. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs. And once again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Do you think that Paul was asking God to bless the Philippians for their great outreach investment in his ministry? You bet. 
Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. No one was doing any accounting. Paul was the only one really that knew what all was coming in from the church at Thessalonica. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Ephroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. That's how you get it right. Amen? I did something the other day that I thought later, God, have I, have I got ahead? Have I done something wrong? But I said, well, I'll just tell everybody what I did. You know, we were having trouble heating this room, so I showed up one morning very early. I wanted to see what the temperature was like and see if I could raise it up. I didn't want the women to stay home because it's cold. I didn't want anybody to stay home because it's cold. And the president of this Bible university was out there shoveling the sidewalks. Eric. Anybody ever met Eric? Met Eric out there. There he was, shoveling snow. Didn't know who he was. I said, I see the lights on up there. I said, is a, is a river in the desert church here? He said, no, that, that's my office. I went, oh. I said, you must be. He said, yeah, I'm the dean. The dean of the college was out there shoveling the sidewalks at 5 in the morning during Christmas holidays, right? He knew no one else was going to come do it, so he did it himself. I wanted to get to know that guy. Loved his heart, right? He told me, he said, you know, we're, we're getting very excited. In February, my son's coming home from the mission field. I said, I want to meet him. I want to meet him. He just blurted it out. I want to meet him. I said, because our church is praying that God would show us ministries that we can invest in. So what did I do? <laughs> On your behalf, I just obligated us to meet this man. That's what I did. And we're going to meet him in February. And we're going to let him tell us what God has him doing. And we're going to pray. Does God want us to do something for this young man? Well, to me, it fits right into the pieces of the puzzle that we're praying about. God, show us what you want us to do. Can you say amen? We're not talking about hoarding up the money. We're talking about giving it away responsibly with God's leading. Amen? How many do believe that if we're responsible with it, God will give us a little more? And if we're responsible with that, God will give us a little more. And if we're responsible with that, God will give us a little more until he can trust us with more. All right? May we always be faithful to listen to him. Because I'm telling you right now, he's blessing our socks off. All right? How do I really know if I'm getting this right? Point number three. How do I know? Yeah, it's questions you need to ask yourself. If you spend more time complaining about what you don't have than giving thanks for what you do have, you're not getting it right. I, I mean, it, you know me. I'm a common sense kind of guy. Think about it with the Holy Ghost. And you, you know these things. You just know them. If you spend more time complaining about what you don't have than giving thanks for what you do have, you're not getting it right. If your financial life is going up and your spiritual life is going down, you're not getting it right. If you compromise spiritual principles to gain a profit, you're not getting it right. If you're praying more for the growth of your cash than for the growth of your character, you're not getting it right. If you treat rich people better than you treat people without money, you're not getting it right. Amen? God help us. I, I wrote this story down because I've heard it. It's a very, it's a bad joke, 
But it, it, really, it really says a lot. Here's what it says. A man went to his pastor one day and said, Pastor, I'm depressed. Pastor asked him, what's wrong? Well, he said, last year my aunt died and left me $30,000. The year before that, my uncle died and left me $50,000. Pastor said, so why are you depressed? The man replied, because this year nobody, nobody died. <laughs> <clears throat> Need I say that that's the kind of thinking we can fall into when we become gripped by greed? <laughs> it is kind of funny. It's ridiculous, but it's funny, right? But you know what? It's not far off of human nature. It really isn't. You know? Especially if you get two windfalls in a row. People think, ah, maybe one more. Maybe one more. When one God is all you serve, it's all you'll ever need. Not windfall after windfall after windfall. It's a visit with God after visit with God after visit with God. Amen? And that concludes it. Concludes it. We have four messages on pursuing godliness. And I always come to these same conclusions. We've had a series of messages, you know, that were three, four, five, and six parts. In the last six months, that's what God's done with us. You have to answer this question for yourself. Whatever it is, I've got no new messages. <laughs> I don't get it because i got lots of new messages. Listen to me. You have to answer this question for yourself. What am I doing about it? I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an elegant preacher. I, I don't claim to be. I'm not elegant. I'm not, you know, I don't claim to be. I'm not Harvard trained. And you know, Harvard and Princeton and all of those colleges started out as Bible colleges. Then they branched out into law and general subjects. But they started out as Bible colleges for preachers. My education's limited. I, all I know is the Word of God. I love you enough to give it to you as God gives it to me. But I can't make you do anything. I can only pray for you that when you leave here, you, you, you continue to pray, you continue to apply. This is the only church I've ever been to in my life where some young man has made it possible for you. You can listen to these sermons over and over and over again. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. If you don't, don't. It's not about my ego. It's about feeding on the Word of God. Pastor, you can tell yourself this. Pastor loves me, you know. You, you can know that. I love you. Ruth loves you. We're praying for you constantly. But if we... Spend all this time giving you the Word of God, and it's once a week. You can't tell me that you've absorbed everything you needed to in this one little session, right? Go back and feed on it and start thinking. Pastor told me I have to start making decisions in my life. I can't leave you alone. I can't not tell you that. I can't not feed you that truth. You've got to make decisions to apply this Word to your life. Some of you feel like you're just like that hamster or that guinea pig or that gerbil in the cage on the wheel, and the wheel just keeps turning. Every now and then you fall off, but you just get back on it, and you're, the wheel isn't going anywhere. That will not change until you allow the Word of God to change you and change your circumstances. Can you say amen?
Father, I just ask in Jesus' name right now. First of all, Lord, I know, I know that I know that I know. Maybe 35 people, 40 people in this place. Maybe more. The number doesn't matter. But there's enough people in this room that I know there may be a few that haven't even made a solid decision yet to allow you to have their lives. Father, we face adversity on every, on every hand, on every side. All of us do. How we respond to the adversity makes a difference. It is the difference, Father. It doesn't mean that some of us are better than others. That's not true. Only Jesus is good. Only you, Father, you're good. But you dwell in us, Father, if we've allowed you on the inside. Father, there are great and dynamic commitments that we have to make with our lives to you if we're going to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of our lives. But we can't shy away from those truths. We have to talk about them, Father. We have to make an effort to understand the differences that you would make in our lives and the decisions that you would demand. Quality decisions to pursue godliness. It matters. Father, I will go so far as to ask that by the power of your Spirit you touch each and every one of us and give us a special little touch to nudge to let us know that not pursuing godliness is downright dangerous for us. But learning to be content in what you're doing in our lives, learning to pursue godliness in that avenue, in that way, oh, great gain, Father. Great gain. Father, I pray that if there be anyone in this room that's never really allowed you into your, their lives, I pray in Jesus' name that they would just accept you now, invite you in, Father. I pray in Jesus' name because I know you're knocking. I know that you're literally pursuing them, Father. You're pursuing them, Father. What an honor, what a privilege. The God of the universe pursues, loves, reaches out. Thank you for caring enough for us to do that, Father. In Jesus' name I pray.